Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we are here to preview week 13 of the college baseball season. Definitely coming down to crunch time here around the country. A lot of uh, intriguing games to talk about with postseason implications and conference title implications. Uh, And we're also going to uh, touch on, it's been kind of a busy week of injury news uh, in terms of of prominent players, so we'll uh, we'll get to some of that as well. But first, the Baseball America College Podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo. National Player Database at repsoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're, uh, we're here. It's, it's week 13. There's uh, a gas crisis on the East Coast. Uh, so hopefully everyone's able to, to get to games that, that needs and wants to get to games uh, this weekend without, without too much of a problem. But it's, uh, like I said, it's getting down to crunch time when I go through and put together the field of 64 projections and when we talk about all that stuff it's you, you look at schedules and it's like oh there are like five games left for them to do something with or six or seven eight i don't know how many however many games you're looking at but it's uh it's not too many games left on anyone's schedule at this point yeah a uh, couple things there uh i was thinking about this weekend i am not going on a like a what i would call a significant drive trip this weekend staying local and i'm i'm glad because i, I would really truly have to kind of consider whether or not I want to do that given the situation with the gas here. It's not great in North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, in those states in particular. So I'm, I'm glad I don't have to make that decision. Uh, by comparison, going to Chapel Hill, which is, you know, 15 minutes from my house, um, I was fortunate that I kind of by happenstance filled up my tank before this all happened. So I'm in, in pretty good shape, thankfully. Uh, so that, that I'm glad I don't have to be in that position where I'm trying to decide whether or not it's worth it to, to risk it. Uh, finding gas once I get to wherever I'm, to wherever I'm going. The other thing on the schedules, you mentioned teams will be having, you know, handful of games left. We're officially at the time of year when, when I click on a team schedule page, or if I, you know, uh, you know, are viewing schedules on, you know, the Warren Nolan site, which you and I both use as a resource for RPI and stuff. Like rather than just kind of slow scrolling now, the first thing I do when the schedule loads is do one big swipe just to kind of like scroll fast to the bottom because I know that's easier than me just trying to like slow scroll to find the spot where I'm left off. And that's how I know we're getting close to the end of the season. <laughs> that is, that is absolutely uh, a good, uh, like, yeah, I, uh, at this point I'm, I, uh, I usually just go page down on my, my keyboard. Now we're, I, yeah, I've we're, never been a we're going all the way to the end that. basically. Yeah, I've never been a keyboard shortcut guy like that. I just can't, 
you know, I, I used to work in a, a tech company. We had a lot of developers and, you know, got folks like that. And they were always big on, I just never, it's never been part of my, like my, my process, I guess. So you can't, can't teach this old dog new tricks, I guess. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, in addition to crunch time and we're going to, we're going to get to the series to watch this weekend here in a little bit. Um, Joe, there's been some not insignificant injury news this week uh, that is worth us talking about here. Um, I think most significantly, you're looking at the that the most significant injury would be Ole Miss right-hander Gunnar Hogland, preseason All-American, potential top 10 overall pick. Reb's Friday night starter, that Gunnar Hogland, is out for the season. He will be having Tommy John surgery. Uh, that comes after he missed a start a couple weeks ago, came back, and then um, this last weekend just recorded two outs before he left due to injury. Um, you know, so it's it's been something that they've kind of been dealing with, but now he is out for the season. And that is, uh, that is a really tough blow to Ole Miss, particularly because uh, they are still very much fighting for a hosting spot. They're 14 and 10 in the SEC, but now face trips uh, or face a series against Vanderbilt this weekend that we'll talk about and a trip to Georgia next weekend before the SEC tournament. So they really could have used Hogland as they come down the stretch here, but they'll They'll now have to uh, have to sort things out without him, and he will he'll go and, and have surgery ahead of um, the MLB draft, and presumably his his Ole Miss baseball career is now over. Yeah, that's that's a big one, you know, uh, you know, and, and I think Gunnar Hoagland is going to end up having one of those. Um, maybe he pitched enough this year to where maybe he avoids this a little bit, but it, it does strike me that he's going to be one of those careers where he had a, a really nice college career and accomplished a lot of things, but it's, it's always going to be, it's always going to feel a little bit incomplete when you talk about, you know, as, as a freshman, he, he had his struggles and then it looked like he was really hitting a stride last year and the season got canceled. And then this year, he obviously had taken a huge step forward as one of the best arms in the sec and in the entire country. And now he's having that season cut short by injury. And as part of that, he's not going to have the opportunity to kind of, make those postseason memories and, and moments that really kind of defi- often define college careers, especially in the sec. Like he's just not going to have that opportunity. And, and that sucks. Um, he's, I think he's destined for, for a nice pro career. So it's, you know, all, certainly all is not lost here. It's just kind of a bummer for him, but, but yeah, I think, I think he's going to end up having one of those types of careers that we think about as like just being a little, you know, a little bit incomplete through no fault of, of his own at all. And, and for Ole Miss, I, I this is tough because, you know, so much of their, the optimi- any optimism you could have about Ole Miss, which has been relatively hard to come by lately. We talked about that on the last episode of the podcast, but is, is centered around, well, you still got Hoagland and Nikhazian. So you, you feel pretty good about that at a bare minimum. And, and hey, in a, in a regional, super regional in Omaha, as long as you stay on the right side of the bracket, like, you know, starting with those two starting pitchers gets you most of the way to what you need. So um, that obviously takes a big hit here um, and really puts into doubt what Ole Miss can do. And, and you mentioned the, the hosting spot. I mean, that was already a tough road for them. Um, now it gets obviously exponentially tougher. Yeah. Unfortunately, the hosting uh, shortlist won't be announced until Friday, depending on when you're listening to this, it may be announced. But as we record this on Thursday, we, we 
don't yet know who will be on it. Uh, but I am sure that Ole Miss will be included on that list because they are like 11th in RPI right now and have 14 SEC wins already. So if they were to just go 500 uh, in the, the series against Vanderbilt and Georgia, they are probably looking at hosting. Um, but I took them off the host line this week in the projected field of 64 because the the Hoagland news had come out and it's just really hard to see how they win uh, this weekend against Vanderbilt or go to Georgia and win a series uh, considering all of the uh, you know various pitching issues they're, they're dealing with both in terms of now Hoagland's injury and uh, you know the the various bullpen things that we've we've talked about uh, over the last several weeks here about Ole Miss. So that's something to watch uh, for sure is how how Ole Miss is going to move on without Hogland in the rotation for uh, for the rest of the season. Also this week we had news that Georgia left-hander Ryan Webb is done for the year. He has an elbow injury. The next course of action was not. Um, has not been decided yet, um, but his he's out for the season due to that injury. And that's really rough for Georgia as well for a lot of the same reasons we talked about uh, for Ole Miss. Webb isn't quite the prospect, but he is, uh, he, he is a draft prospect himself. He's, you know, one of Georgia's most important pitchers. He's been their best starting pitcher uh, this season. And you know now they're going to be without him for their own stretch run as they try and secure an NCAA tournament bid. Uh, they face a really tough road of their own. Um, they have Florida this weekend and then Ole Miss. And so without Ryan Webb, that's, uh, that's a really big blow. And Georgia has been hit really as hard as anyone, I feel like, this season by injury. Um, you know, not to... To make that into a contest, you know, I know Arizona State probably feels like they've uh, they've really been hammered as well, and they have been. Uh, you know, but Georgia started the season without Webb and Cannon due to illness. Um, Webb had COVID issues. Cannon had uh, had mono, and you know now they're going to finish the season without Webb. Cannon's been, uh, you know, he just hasn't been able to take that step forward that I think a lot of people projected for him uh, because of his, his ailment and uh, you know, UGA and and CJ Smith as well has, has really been uh, limited this season and he is now also done for the year. So George is dealing with some injury stuff. And then the other thing is uh, also in the SEC is Jack Leiter is not, you know, we're not a hundred percent sure that Jack Leiter is going to pitch this weekend against Ole Miss. He of course had to start skipped last week uh, due to fatigue slash workload management. And the news out of Nashville this week from Tim Corbin was that Leiter really wanted to pitch this weekend, uh, but they were still trying to see how he responded to throwing his midweek stuff. Uh, and then they were going to make a decision. So again, as we record this, not sure whether Leiter it's going to be a part of that series against Ole Miss this weekend or not. Um, you know, hopefully he is able to be a part of it and, and get back into it for the, for the doors. But uh, injuries are starting to mount around the country. Um, possible to know whether this is due to workload stuff following, uh, you know, the canceled last season or whether this is just normal wear and tear stuff. Injuries to pitchers after all do 
do to happen. It's not, it's not like this is a unique season, but we're, uh, we're, we're definitely seeing several of them around the country and, and you can throw, you know, another preseason All-American Jaden Hill into that, who of course has, has now been out for the last couple months for, for LSU. Yeah. Unfortunately, it, it's just kind of seems like injuries are, are going to be one of the big storylines we we're going to look back on this season with time. Of course, other things will come forward, but for right now, it really has affected a lot of different teams that we, that we thought a lot about. And I have to admit that I thought at this point of the season, given the fact that we're, we're still dealing with some of the effects of, of COVID, especially earlier in the season, I, and I, I kind of expected we would be doing more of the, the game of, Hmm, this guy didn't play last weekend and the team did though. And he seems healthy. So like, is it COVID question mark? Like we really haven't had to do a lot of that. There's some of that early. Um, we, we had some of that early on, but that largely has seemed to kind of go away now. Now some of that just gets thrown into like, well, if you have more than a couple of those, like suddenly you just can't play and like games get postponed or canceled or, or whatever. So that's part of the reason I'm assuming there, but so we've had less of that, but obviously the, the injuries have just been really, um, really a lot to deal with. I mean, you've had Ole Miss, which is, has been able to fight through up until this point, you know, having Tim Elko gone, like their offense has actually been pretty good. So, um, but this now kind of fundamentally changes what we think about the Arizona state. I think we'd think about them completely differently. I mean, that's a, that's probably a team that, that we probably were a little too low on as it turns out, if they had been healthy on the mound this season, you know, Texas tech and, and Georgia, and you mentioned Jaden Hill at LSU. I mean, if, if Jaden Hill had been the Jaden Hill, we expected, like we certainly wouldn't be having the conversation about LSU, like having to really fight just to even get onto the bubble. So unfortunately it's just been a year where injuries are a big storyline. Yeah, there's uh there's no doubt about that. I mean, injuries are just a part of, of the sport on an annual basis, but it does feel like this year, um, some teams in particular, I don't know if like, on a national scale, if we've had more injuries than we usually do, but there've just been some real concentrations of them, unfortunately. And there actually probably are more on a national scale too. Um, we'd have to you know, really work to define what that meant and everything, but it's, uh, it has not been an easy spring in terms of in terms of injuries. And we're, we're not, we're not past them, uh, by any means, of course, as, uh, as the calendar approaches the middle of May here. Uh, all right, so that's uh, that's kind of your quick newser on in terms of the the injury stuff. You can read more about Hogland's injury and how it affects his draft stock if you're interested in that over on the website. Carlos Colazzo uh, took care of that for us. Uh, short answer: He probably still can be a first rounder uh, if you're if you're wondering about that. But you can get more than just that that quick synopsis uh, over on the website from Carlos. We'll, uh, we'll get here to the top series to watch this week uh, here in a second. Uh, but first, check this out. All right, Joe, we've reached that part of the, uh, the Thursday podcast where we talk about the, the top series to watch this weekend, the you know, keys for, for the teams uh, to, to win those series. And just kind of run through what you need to be keeping an eye on around the country this weekend. Uh, it is frankly a lighter slate than last weekend. Last weekend was fantastic with all those first place showdowns around the country and a lot of top 25 series. Uh, this weekend, 
just not quite as much. I don't really know why that is. I think it's just a weird scheduling quirk more than anything. Uh, last weekend really actually should have been worse than it was when you consider finals breaks, I think were happening more commonly last weekend than this weekend. Um, but uh, as it is, this weekend is, is a little light, but we still get a top five series. And so we're going to start there. It is Arkansas, top-ranked Arkansas, heading to Tennessee. And the Vols, of course, are uh, they're, they're out there doing their thing. I guess this is not a top five series. It's a top 10 series. Um, the Vols are still out there doing their thing, looking like uh, you know one of the top teams in the SEC. They're actually tied with Vanderbilt for the SEC East lead. Um, they, of course, did lose that series to Vanderbilt. So on tiebreaker, they're, they're, they're I, although actually, I guess, as I say this, I, I, I don't have the SEC East standings in front of me. They are actually a half game ahead of Vanderbilt because Vanderbilt did not play its third game last weekend. Anyway, point is, these are two of the top teams in the SEC, two of the teams fighting for the, the number one seed in Hoover, uh, should be a really fun one in uh, in Knoxville. But beyond that, it's a chance for Tennessee to prove that it belongs among the conversation for the the sports like truly elite teams. You know, you're looking at um, a, a, a team that again is is in the mix to win the SEC, but you know it lost a, a series to Vanderbilt. It beat Florida, but it, it, those are kind of the the two teams that it's it's had a, a had a crack at at the top of the SEC, um, you know. And, and this is this is a crack at number one, so a, a really big opportunity now for Tennessee to to prove that it is uh, you know an SEC title and a, a national title contender. Yeah, it does feel like a big spot for them on, on a number of levels. One you mentioned, like again, like it seems like we've had this conversation about Tennessee multiple times this year, but kind of just sneakily just is there. And I think this is another chance to, you know, you talked about after the, the series against Vanderbilt, Tony Vitello saying that, you know, we'll learn from this series. This is an opportunity to, to learn that, Hey, we're not quite ready. I'm paraphrasing. Of course, we're not quite ready to win it at this level yet, but we're going to get there. And this is a, a stepping stone in that direction. Well, well, here's a shot for you. Number one team in the country coming to Knoxville. So it's at home that there's obviously an advantage there. Um, Side note, hopefully the bus trip isn't too far because, you know, getting gas in Tennessee. Anyway, that's a um, just a little, little jokes there on the gas shortage. Um, but, I mean, this is an opportunity for, you know, Tennessee to kind of prove that, hey, we did learn something from, um, fr- from that series loss against Vanderbilt and then go out and prove it against a team um, on par, uh, on that level, obviously, Arkansas, is that. Um, one of the things with Arkansas, it's been kind of interesting for me. We, we talked about this a little bit because, you know, I saw it against a little bit against South Carolina a few weeks ago and it it has kind of continued. And that's that, um, you know, Patrick Wicklander has, has been a different pitcher. Um, You know, he really has starting with that South Carolina series kind of seemed to find another gear, you know, six and two thirds shutouts against LSU five and two thirds shutout against Georgia last weekend, season high strikeouts last weekend against Georgia with nine. Um, So maybe kind of slowly, but surely, you know, they have hit on something a little bit, in the rotation there with Wicklander. And then of course cops, you know, I, has just been on a, a different level in the bullpen and he, he's throwing basically starters innings every, every weekend. 
um, you know, getting, you know, six or seven just from a couple of, of relief outings and why the heck not with the way he's, he's throwing the ball. He's now second on the team in innings behind Wicklander in um, SEC games. So, but what I will say is I do wonder if now it may not matter as much because the offense is swinging the bats a little bit better and they've maybe shown an improvement primarily with Wicklander in the rotation, but you know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll broach it again, you know, in SEC games, the team ERA is approaching five and Caden Monk is, other than Cops and Wicklander, Caden Monk is the only pitcher with an ERA under five in SEC games that is an often used pitcher. Um, and again, I don't know how much it matters. Offense is good. Uh, team plays good defense. They started to be a little bit better in the starting rotation, at least in, in one spot. And they've got the best closer in the country, arguably. So maybe we're, 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 we shouldn't be too worried about it. But, uh, you know, again, I will say like those numbers do paint a little bit of a, a story that you know, um, if you can get past that and that's a hard thing to do, uh, there is some vulnerability there. It feels like nobody's just been able to do that. And maybe it's only just now been exposed to that same degree. Yeah. It's, uh, it's an interesting one. Like, will, will that matter in the end? I don't know. Um, you know, you're talking about a team, like if we're going to talk sec play, talking about a team that, uh, is as a team slugging 429 against SEC pitching. Uh, they have 32 home runs against SEC pitching. So, like, yeah, maybe you can get to their uh, their pitching a little bit, uh, you know, and, and certainly, you know, guys like Lockhart and Vermillion have not been as good as they were early in the season and Paulette is continuing to be a little more mixed uh, than he was early in the season, but you're going to have to outscore them. And I've said, I continue to say, like I've said it a lot that Arizona is the best offense in the country. Um, I don't know, like maybe it's time for me to kind of reevaluate that, that position. Uh, Cause this Arkansas offense is ridiculous and you're going to have to, you're just going to have to score with them. And I don't know how many teams are capable of doing that. You know, when you consider that you're right now going to have to, you know, of the 27 innings on an SEC weekend, 12 of them, it looks like are coming against Wicklander and cops cops is potentially the best pitcher in the SEC, potentially the best pitcher in the country. Like he does lead the nation in ERA. Um, it's, unusual that we're talking about him in this way uh but you know statistically he's right there um you know no one no one has matched really what he's doing on on any any real level like can talk about Landon Sims all you want but he doesn't have he has thrown like half as many innings so you know it's uh it's a totally different thing what cops is doing and Wicklander is is now taking a pretty significant step forward so if you have to contend with those two guys for more than a third of the weekend, um, it's uh, it's going to be a challenge to keep up scoring wise with uh, with the Hogs, and that's uh, unfortunately not necessarily I, I think what Tennessee is out here trying to do. I, I think they would be much more comfortable in a pitching showdown. They have some guys that can run the ball out of the ballpark. That's for sure. You know, Evan Russell has uh, has has really taken off here and. Jake Rucker is uh, plenty capable of doing that. Like they are, they are a good home run hitting team, but beyond that, I have some offensive questions about Tennessee 
um, you know, we'll see, uh, we'll see what they can do this weekend. And maybe it winds up being a more offensive weekend than, uh, than I would expect. I do think these two teams are built somewhat similarly. Don't think that's an accident considering Tony Vitello, um, you know, came to Tennessee from Arkansas, uh, where he was an assistant coach for, for a few years under Dave Van Horn. And I, I think that, uh, this is, this is a really intriguing matchup and, you know, it, it, Tennessee doesn't need to win this weekend to prove anything to anyone, but, uh, like we've talked about before right now, it just feels like it's Arkansas and Vanderbilt and then everyone else. And then, you know, maybe Mississippi state is closing the gap. If Tennessee wants to, to close the gap or to, to force us to kind of reevaluate the take that it is Arkansas Vanderbilt and then everyone else, they, uh, they do need a win this weekend to do that. Yeah, I think you, I mean, you might be onto something with it being a more offensive series you might anticipate because in SEC games and it's unbalanced schedule, I get it. SEC games, Tennessee's batting average and slugging are higher than Arkansas. Um, And it does feel like they've shown some improvement um, in that regard. There are still some guys that haven't quite come along. Max Ferguson, for example, is hitting 224 in in SEC competition. So there are still some guys that we were expecting to be big parts of this that just haven't quite been that um and it is a home run based offense they have 37 homers in, in sec play um and we've seen that time and again that they'll score five runs and four of them are on home runs um so that's you know that, that part of it can sometimes come and go depending on things that are out of your control weather things like that so um we will have to see but but this is i think this is the ballpark here though i think it is worth noting this being at lindsey nelson or even at bomb walker this is these are home run ballparks uh mm-hmm. and Lindsey nelson you know uh in that series against vanderbilt did play uh very much to the home run ball yeah so i mean it, it very i think it very well could be the kind of offensive series that that comes down to you know prepare yourself because maybe this is one of those series that comes down to a a sunday 13 to 9 kind of thing um that takes four hours and 15 minutes uh because all miss all miss tried to play that game against yep. Arkansas and they lost. Yep. So like, yeah, Ar- if, Arkansas if it comes that. to that, yeah. Right. They are, if a, it comes uh, to that, Arkansas will be plenty comfortable. Pardon the metaphor. Arkansas is like a uh, pig in mud in that, <laughs> um, in that type of situation. So that, that is the, that is definitely a type of game they are comfortable winning because I mean, that is where even if the pitching, the, the, the bullpen numbers kind of, you're like, well, you know, is, is this bullpen good? Like that, that is where the bullpen shines though, because that is the situation where, they can really just throw volume at you on a Sunday and you run out of guys and they've still got guys. And so um, that, that would be a very comfortable situation for Arkansas if it plays out that way. All right. Well, that's uh, like I said, that's the the top series of the weekend. Let's stay in the sec though. We kind of obliquely talked about this, um, you know, at the start of the podcast, uh, Ole Miss is hosting Vanderbilt. It is, I'm very intrigued to see this series just because I'm very intrigued to see what both of these teams look like this, this weekend. Like how is Ole Miss going to uh, work without Hogland? How is uh, Vanderbilt going to work either with or without Leiter? Uh, because even if Leiter comes back, given what we know, I don't think they would just let him go back to throwing 100 pitches this weekend i would think that he'd be on a a tighter tighter pitch count than that this weekend given that he hasn't pitched in a week uh and that they're trying to manage fatigue or workload or whatever um 
I would think that you couldn't expect him to go six or seven innings. You're looking at five if he's efficient and more likely three or four. So then what does that look like for Vanderbilt? And, uh, you know, but it's also most likely a, a showdown of Nikhazy and Rocker, two great pitchers on Friday night. Um, should be a pretty offensive, offensively fun series. Ole Miss continues to hit the ball well, even without Elko uh, in his, his regular role. He's now back as like a pinch hitter, I guess. Um, we'll see if he can get into more than that down the stretch, but um, you know, it's a, uh, it's a fascinating series. Uh, Vanderbilt was fine last weekend without lighter against Alabama. Uh, this is a slightly different animal though, as they, they go on the road to face one of the better offenses in the sec. Yeah. I, I don't, this is maybe based on very little, but I, I just kind of have a feeling based on maybe a little bit of an imbalance of motivation here where Vanderbilt's got a very secure top eight resume at this point. Um, they've just built up a lot of kind of the kind of stuff you need for a top eight resume, which is not to say going, Oh, and six down the stretch, which I, I don't anticipate, but Oh, and six to finish the regular season can't undo some of that, but they are pretty secure here. And Ole Miss just really needs this if they want to host. And it does feel like Ole Miss is a little bit backs against the wall. And certainly the Hoagland injury probably makes it feel that way even more so. And it's always tough when you're betting on something like motivation or being fired up or, you know, standing up for, for your team, all that kind of stuff is just so intangible that you just never know. But I do have kind of a funny feeling that this is going to be like a last stand weekend for Ole Miss, you know, being at home, knowing that they have so much on the line here, you know, again, they probably feel really backed into a corner. And then you combine that with, you know, some of Vanderbilt's vulnerabilities, you know, whether that's um, the fact that teams have had a lot of success. I mean, even, when lighter has been healthy the last four or five weeks, like they've teams have had more success against him. Teams have had intermittent success against rocker. And then we know the vulnerabilities Vanderbilt has in third games of series. And so, you know, when you consider that Ole Miss is, you mentioned that they continue to swing the bat well against, um, you know, against the opposition without Tim Elko. I mean, it's by batting average might be the best offense in the sec. That's not to say, I think it, it is the best offense in the sec, but batting average wise tells you that story. Uh, which is kind of amazing considering we just thought, boy, you know, where's this production going to come from without Tim Elko? And, and they've had a lot of guys step up, whether it's Hayden Leatherwood or TJ McCant swinging the bat well. Kevin Graham has continued to be that kind of guy they need him to be. So they've just had a, a really good team effort there offensively. But I don't know, like I, it, it is kind of one of those intangible things, but I just kind of get the feeling that this is a the type of weekend where, where Ole Miss comes out and plays inspired. But I guess we'll have to see. Six regulars in this Ole Miss lineup are hitting above 300 in SEC play, which, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, they're just, they keep getting it done. I knew that Leatherwood wasn't going to stay down forever. Like he, he started the season very slowly. Uh, that wasn't, that just wasn't going to last. Uh, getting Chatagnier back, of course, was, was important. He was, he was hurt for a while. McCants has been uh, a real difference maker this this season coming in as a freshman playing really well obviously justin bench uh doing the same thing uh th those two guys that are not justin bench jacob gonzalez excuse me those two guys have have been been vital and you know i didn't see justin bench coming into the season i, I didn't think justin bench was going to be running around with a 900 ops at this stage of the season and his 12 steals 
he's actually been hit by a pitch more times than he's either walked or struck out, which is remarkable. Um, you know, they've, uh, they've got the, the pieces here to, to work without a fully healthy Tim Oko. And, you know, that's uh, an absolute credit to the entirety of the Ole Miss lineup, the Ole Miss coaching staff, um, you know, for, for getting them ready, especially hitting coach Mike Clement and, uh, you know, Carl Lafferty, their recruiting coordinator for getting those guys to campus. Like it's, uh, you know, it's, it's really been impressive, but yeah, now with their backs against the wall, what can they do this weekend? And they're going to need somebody on that pitching staff besides Doug and Casey uh, to step up and besides Taylor Broadway. Um, you know, I, I'm sure that you're looking at Drew McDaniel and Derek Diamond uh, making starts this weekend. They're going to need the best from those guys, or at least from one of those guys. And you know, they're they're also going to need the the bullpen to to come through if they're going to make this an offensive weekend. You know, Vanderbilt is is equipped to play in that. Um, you know, with uh, with Keegan and Thomas and. Enrique Bradfield and CJ Rodriguez and Carter Young and Jason Gonzalez, they have a plenty good offense of their own. Um, so you gotta, you gotta be ready for that. If, uh, if that's the way you're going to play it. But I, I think that uh, you might be onto something, Joe, and just in terms of, you know, you never know what kind of emotional spike you might get from just knowing like, Hey, we that this is, this is it. Now we got to do it. There's, there's no, no margin for error anymore like we were playing for our friend now or, or whatever like you uh you, you never know how that's going to work and, and mike bianco is a, a really good motivator so i'm sure they're gonna they're gonna work to play on that but at the same time somebody once the once the adrenaline wears off you gotta have something to back it up and, and we'll we'll see particularly in the rotation if diamond and mcdaniel are are able to do that All right, let's keep it moving and let's go to the Big Ten, Joe. This is a big one in the Big Ten. Got Indiana heading to Michigan. In the Big Ten, you've got three teams at the top really fighting for for the league title. Uh, The Hoosiers, the Wolverines, and the Nebraska. So all three of these teams are going to play each other down the stretch any time that they do, it's going to be a big deal. That starts this weekend with the Hoosiers heading to Ann Arbor, Indiana, continuing, of course, it's very, very challenging uh, stretch here to close the season. Two weeks ago, they won that series against Iowa to kick it off. Then this last weekend, they went to a pod uh, at Rutgers, played Rutgers, played Nebraska, played really well there, go three and one hold on to first place in the big 10 as a result. And, uh, and now they got to do it on the road in Michigan uh, against the preseason favorites. I uh, I'll be interested first of all, to see how Indiana continues to, to handle this stretch. I mean, that's just a lot to ask of a team to uh, you know, not have any sort of, of break in terms of playing contenders to the big 10 title. Um, and that's, uh, that's what they're doing right now. And then also here going on the road, something that Indiana hasn't, you know, they did last week to, uh, to that pod, but this is a true road game, true road, three game series. 
what's that going to look like for them? And then, you know, Michigan has been an interesting team. They, I don't think they've gotten it done the way that I expected them to. I, I expected them to be in this position. I just didn't think they were going to get here this way. They have been a more offensive team than I realized that they would be. Steve Hadger and Cameron Weston have been great at the front of the rotation. Uh, but they've, uh, I, I remember writing their preseason capsule and, and preseason Big Ten stuff and thinking, well, okay, but where is Michigan's offense coming from? And they've done, they've done just fine offensively. Uh, they have 48 home runs as a team. They're uh, they're hitting 278 as a team. They're scoring a lot of runs. It, it is honestly one of the best offenses in the Big Ten. And uh, IU's got a, a really powerful offense as well. So I just think this is a fun weekend of baseball in Ann Arbor. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, kudos to Eric Bakich and his staff on the transfer portal. Benjamin Sims, Christian Molfetta, two best hitters per average on the team. Uh, two big hits in the transfer portal for, for Michigan there. And that is not always a a uh, sure thing, obviously, you know, Teddy and I have pointed out privately just in Slack, you know, here pointing out here and there, just some of these, you know, teams that took on big grad transfer classes or just, you know, four to four transfers just in general that have not really worked out because it's just such a hard thing. Sometimes it's a hard thing to pull off, but Michigan has um, even not having the full complement of guys we thought they would have from a grad transfer perspective um, have, have gotten a lot from, from those two guys. And that feels like it's been a, a game changer for them offensively. Um, Cause they are leading the way, uh, you know, Michigan, you know, they, they, they won three or four with Iowa to begin the season. And I think we could agree that's a different Iowa team than what we're seeing now. They're playing better just generally. And they won that series against Ohio state. And like, I don't want to take that away, but like they do feel like a team that kind of is looking for another statement series win. And I think this is an opportunity uh, to do so here with the big 10 leaders in Indiana. Cause otherwise it's, you know, a lot of wins against, you know, Michigan state and, Illinois and Minnesota, Penn State, you know, uh, Purdue. So that there's a lot of the weaker teams in the Big Ten. So they finish up with the tough, you know, Indiana, Maryland, Nebraska. So we're about to see it all front and center here. Um, this game, by the way, Sunday, ESPN2. Uh, hopefully this one actually happens on ESPN2 versus the Ohio State Series, which very much did not and was played in probably the worst weather I've ever seen a game tried to be played in this year when you consider the temperature and the fact that it was drizzling the way it was. There were a couple things drizzling, with, put, to put it mildly, like yeah, Dave Van Horn thinks it was drizzling. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. If, if you're, if you're familiar it, with the, yeah. the gif of Dave Van Horn yelling, it's not even raining while it's clearly like pouring rain. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, uh, yeah, you're right. It was, it was hard that I actually slipped away from that game for a while. So maybe it was raining. You know, the uh, Kentucky Florida series had a game last weekend where Nick Delatore uh, covers the Gators tweeted about like, I don't know why these players are still on the field. And I had flipped away from the game for a second. And I came back when he, when I saw that tweet and I kid you not, when I turned on the game on the, on a, you know, the ESPN app I, from the center field camera, it was just a particularly bad moment, I guess, but I literally could not see the batter. Um, that's how hard it was raining. Now that again, looked like the wind had just picked up a lot in that moment. That was part of it. Cause it was whipping the, the rain all over the place, but um, so yeah, that, that would probably actually take the cake, but the, the cold on that day, I assume for Michigan, well, Ohio state, if you didn't watch, so Michigan blew out Ohio state in that game, Ohio state, like put some runs on late. So if you go look up the score, it like won't look that bad. So you, you went away from that game, but they had moved that game up to try and beat the weather. And they didn't quite like, they just kept it going. I'm not quite sure why, um, you know, I've never really like looked into it. Uh, but like as as the day progressed there, uh, it the weather deteriorated in Ann Arbor that day. 
Yeah, I do remember that kind of taking like a long time. Like, my goodness, they're still playing this game. But um, yeah, yeah not, Michigan not scored game. like 18 runs or something. Yeah. A couple things for, for Indiana that we've talked about their pitching before being pretty being pretty good this year. But I think there's a couple things that are, are important here. One is, is Gabe Bierman has been like excellent. And, you know, he was a guy who I wasn't quite sure what to think of. Um, he reminds me a little bit just in terms of in a few ways of like when, when Indiana had a rotation led by Pauly Milto. And I think Beerman's stuff is better than Milto's. Actually, I know it's better than Milto's, but he kind of reminds me of that in terms of like, you look at the stuff and you're like, okay. But then he, he the numbers just show that he's a lot better than, than you would probably just assume, you know, he's holding batters to a 168 average. Um, his strikeout to walk ratio is good. Um, and he's just had standout start after standout start last weekend against Nebraska, one earned run in, in a complete game with 11 strikeouts. I mean, he's really been, um, you know, really, really good for them. And then McCade Brown has bounced back a little bit. I was a little bit worried the last few weeks that maybe there'd been a little bit of fool's gold with McCade Brown early this season when his first two starts were absolutely dominant. And he's not gotten back to that necessarily because that was just otherworldly what he did against Rutgers and Penn State to start the season. But last weekend against Rutgers again, so maybe this is a Rutgers problem, but um, one hit and one run over seven innings with 11 strikeouts, which was a, a lot, lot better than most anything else he'd done in the previous six weeks. So um, perhaps he is flattening out a little bit in a good way um, as opposed to kind of being very up and down throughout that part of the season, because, you know, he's really a game changer, you know, Indiana gets in a regional, they feel pretty good about Beerman and, and Tommy summer, at least being steady. Um, but having McCade Brown be that version of McCade Brown uh, versus the one that struggles to throw strikes and ends up just throwing two and two thirds innings. Cause he's given up a few runs and has 70 pitches on his ledger. Uh, that one is not going to be effective in the regionals. And so maybe we still don't know which one we're going to get, but certainly he's trending in the right direction lately. I, uh, I think it's a really good first two pitching matchups here. You, you, you talked about what, what IU has, and then, you know, Michigan running out Hadger and, and Weston in those first two games. I, I think that that's really intriguing uh, just from a pitching standpoint. I don't know what this third game looks like if if they get to it as a rubber game like indiana is deeper on the mound and like this is total role reversal from what i would have expected that indiana seems to be deeper on the mound and michigan seems to be deeper offensively so like which i, I the, the the series might might pivot on which one of those team like which team is able to to take control and play the game it wants to play on sunday like is it a offensive battle in which case Michigan probably uh, has to be favored or is it, is, is Indiana's superior pitching depth? Does that come to bear on uh, on a Sunday? And I don't know, I don't know which way to expect it to go at all. Uh, it, it would be, it would be really interesting to, to see how it, how it would shake out. And if, um, you know, if Indiana, they, if they can get that kind of, of, of strong performance from a, uh, from Gabe Beerman on, on a Sunday that they, they typically have been getting. I, I think that that would be a really big deal for them. If this comes to a, a, uh, a rubber game, you know, after he beat Iowa in a rubber game, Beerman, you know, talked about how, you know, he, he didn't care whether he pitched on Sunday or Friday or Saturday. He just wanted to pitch in the rotation but also it seemed clear that he did kind of enjoy the, the, the prospect of being the, the guy who was entrusted to go out and win a series. Uh, and, and he's 
statistically been their top starting pitcher this season. So, you know, if it comes to it, Indiana probably is going to feel good about themselves, but the, the Michigan offense is, uh, is a, is a real challenge for any team to, to try and shut down, uh, especially on after, you know, you've already played 18 innings the, the, over the first two days of a, of a weekend. It's um, big 10 just generally is, been interesting because I think it's broken in such a way that, and you spend more time with this than I do because you're doing the the field of 64 every week, but it does feel like it's broken in such a way where, and we talk about this a lot in the preseason, kind of figuring out what the big 10 is going to look like and what that means. And it, it does feel like it's gone in, in a direction where it's been able to kind of maximize the number of teams that it has at least in the postseason conversation, while also basically shutting itself out from having any sort of hopes to host a regional. Yeah, I, this has been a topic this week, of course, as host sites, you know, that that short list is about to to come down. And, you know, it's uh, I don't I don't see a case for a Big Ten team to host unless you're like, like that isn't based in geography or, or growing the game air quotes on that. Um, and frankly, they don't need the geographical like they don't need a Big Ten host to, to get the geography because they got Pitt and Louisville if they want that, uh, in addition to Notre Dame. So shouts to the ACC for <laughs> bringing Midwestern baseball, plenty of host sites if they want it. Um, and like in a normal year where they're like not in a, in a, in a year where they're announcing host sites at the normal time and the big 10 is still doing its its conference only thing like in that world i think that maybe you wait three weeks you see who the big 10 champion is and then you say like okay did they separate themselves enough to uh to determine that this is the best team in the big 10 and then maybe we host them but it's not like the selection committee has been in the business of giving the big 10 champion a host site very often um you know the big 10 champion typically does not host. So why in a year when they're not playing, uh, you know, non-conference to, to further bolster their resumes, why would we think that they would just get a host? Um, you know, now maybe if you were talking about trying to balance geography, um, you know, maybe there's something to be said for that. Nebraska doesn't help you do that hardly at all. Uh, you're really boxing yourself into uh, what the what the Lincoln Regional would be if you're talking about geography, you're really just saying like, here's the Summit League champion as your four, uh, hoping that Creighton wins the Big East so that they can be your three, I guess. Although Creighton might be a four were they to win the Big East, and then you know hope like here's Oklahoma State as your two or something like that. That's that's what the Lincoln Regional has to look like from a geography standpoint. So you're really boxing yourself in there if that's the, the, the reason for a host. And then Michigan, Indiana, Indiana didn't even bid, but in a world where they did, um, you know, it's really no different to have a, or have a regional in Ann Arbor or in Bloomington than it is to have one in Pittsburgh or Louisville. So it, it's just hard to see how it's helpful to do that. And then in terms of a traveling one seed, you know, were it to come to that, like, I don't, I don't really see what you would be basing that on again, because unless one of these teams takes off over the final three weeks, it truly separates, you know, again, it, the, the big 10 champion is usually not a one seed that that's not where we've been 
I mean, right or wrong, and like I would obviously lean more on the wrong side of, of that being the case, but that's how the Big Ten has been evaluated in normal seasons. So in a year that's abnormal where they aren't playing uh, non-conference and where the standings look the way they do right now, where you have three teams separated by one game, it's just really hard for me to say that whoever comes out as the champion, if it's still going to be as tight as it is, that that team would deserve uh, you know, a one seed or a host site. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> yeah, I debated like I was like, no, that, that seems like a good place to end. Like, I don't need to you know, jump in at anything else to that. Well said. Uh, all right. So let's uh let's move on to uh to the ACC here for for the last series I'm picking here. And uh, you know, the ACC has some intriguing series this weekend. Uh, none of them are like truly like blockbuster though, but you know, you're looking at like Louisville goes to North Carolina and North Carolina, or, you know, really needs this to a, a series win here. If they want to pad their, their resume at all, like right now they're very bubbly and right now I have them bubble out, but um, you know, you can probably find someone with them bubble in that uh, they are just truly right on the bubble there. Uh, and Louisville famously needs to pad its hosting resume. Uh, and you've got, so you've got that, you've got Virginia against Wake Forest, and you know, we've talked about how badly Virginia needs this, and Georgia Tech and Miami, and like those are two of the teams battling for a division title, and um, it probably won't matter because I doubt Georgia Tech's going to be announced as a host candidate this week, but if they are, like that means something. You got Florida State and Clemson, and Florida State probably will be announced as a host candidate, so they need to bolster their resume. Clemson's right on the bubble. Uh, I say all that to say, though, Joe, we're going to talk about Pitt and NC State because I think these are the two best teams that are playing this weekend. I, I just think it's the best on-field series. It may not have the most implications, though Pitt could use the series win to bolster its host uh, qualifications. And NC State is trying to uh, you know, make itself a, a two-seed as opposed to a three-seed in a world where that may or may not matter. I don't know. Um, but I, I just think this is the best on-field series. And it's been a while since we talked Wolfpack. And quietly, they have, they've come on pretty strong. They, uh, they're both 500 in the ACC now after a dreadful start that included uh, some COVID issues of their own. Uh, but they're back now. And they're dealing now with a, a pit team that is back after a two-week break. They come back last week after a two-week break. They go 2-2 two and two against West Virginia and Boston College. Those teams are not super great this year. They're not bad, but they're, I mean, they're not not bad either. So to go just two and two against them wasn't uh, like a huge, like, okay, Pitt is right back to where they were. I think they're going to have to be much more back to where they were playing before if they want to handle the Sensi State team, which all of a sudden is playing pretty well, uh, although they're coming off of a break of their own for finals. Yeah, I think NC State, I wrote about this for three strikes a few weeks ago. I think NC State's figured out some things that have allowed it to, to move forward. Because, I mean, it was a pretty it was a pretty deep trough they fell into. It was one and eight in the ACC, all of which were at home. They played a lot of early home games because, remember, the ACC play started so early they needed to make sure that, you know, there were certain teams that just could not reasonably, you know, uh, host games that early. So a lot of home games for the Wolfpack early. They really fell into a hole and they've, spent the rest of the season clawing their way out of it. And, you know, pitching has 
has been the, the biggest issue for NC State. And we kind of knew that going in because the position player group is really good. And actually, you know, it's kind of working its way back too because there, there are a number of guys who really got off to slow starts there that are now more or less rounding into form. But the pitching has figured some things out. And I feel like that's important. I, I, I don't think it's the type of, of pitching staff that is going to blow anybody away. And, and I'll, I'll get to why that's important in a minute, but, but they do at least kind of know who their guys are. And that's an improvement over where they were to kind of start the season, but they, they more or less have a rotation now of Sam Highfill and Reed Johnston and Matt Willardson. And those guys have all been varying degrees of, of pretty good. Um, you know, Willardson has, has had, you know, really good outings in the past, like against when, when they played Louisville, that was his first start uh, in this role. And uh, he was, he was really good. And so like, he's really shown those flashes and Sam Highfill, same way, Reed Johnson, obviously a little more of the, the savvy veteran there where he's, you know, he's kind of been around the block with this team. And then in the bullpen, their go-to guy is Evan Justice, who still has some ugly numbers by his name, you know, a 525 ERA. But if you take out the starts, uh, his numbers are actually pretty good in the bullpen. So that's, that's a deal where they moved him into a little different role. He shined in that role and the numbers have just taken a long time to kind of catch up to what he actually is is doing on the mound. So he's actually turned into a really effective stopper at the back end. You know, why I say it's kind of important that this isn't a, a pitching staff that's really going to dominate anyone though, is because the one thing you and I have both said about Pitt's offense is, you know, it's not a super explosive offense necessarily, and you can get them with the strikeout. It's, a, it's an offense that, that does strike out quite a bit. You know, they strike out almost three times as often as, as they walk. And the NC State pitching staff is not really necessarily the pitching staff to exploit that. You know, I talked about how good those three starting or how solid, I guess I should say, those three starting pitchers have been. Well, none of them are striking out more than a batter per inning. Um, in fact, of, the, of the, the, the pitchers who have, you know, been a big part of this, Evan Justice is really the one that, that has kind of that strikeout punch, but it's not like his numbers are, he's no Kevin Copps, we'll put it that way. Um, so that feels like an opportunity where Pitt could have some success because as long as they're going to be able to have competitive at bats, they have more of a chance. And, and this is not a situation where NC state's probably going to come in there and, and pile up huge strikeout numbers. Um, so it'll be a little bit of a, um, a weakness versus weakness matchup there that, that one, one side or the other will need to exploit. And I guess I give a little bit of the favor to Pitt there. Here's the thing though. NC state is 12 and three in road games. Two of those losses come against the Oma Irish. So like, we'll just, We'll move on from those. Like they're 12 and three in road games and they're at Pitt this weekend. I don't like, obviously that's pretty fluky, but also what if it's not <laughs> like, I don't know. Um, I remember a couple years ago, Elliot Avent um, talked about how like they went to Hawaii on opening weekend, I think. And like, that was really the only like serious road thing that they scheduled, but they started poorly and he was just really beating himself up for like how hard he'd scheduled early on. And like the Hawaii series was clearly a part of that. And uh, like now seeing that they're 12 and three on the road, it's like, well, maybe this was the year that like you, uh, you should have scheduled more road games. You know, maybe, maybe that would have been a beneficial, uh, beneficial arrangement, but I, you know, it, it's an interesting thing. I don't know how much it actually matters, but it does clearly say that they're comfortable playing on the road, that they're not going to be bothered. Uh, I think it also says that they played Wake, uh, Boston College, and UNC, who they swept, and UNC is a legitimately solid team, but uh, that they probably lined up a little better 
uh, with, with, with road series. Uh, I, I think that's part of why that they're, they're 12 and three on the road. They probably also slept in their own beds when they played that game. In, uh, yeah, played those yeah that is, that is true. How much does that count? And the wake thing as well, you know, that's, uh, they, uh, they're probably staying in Raleigh for that. Um, yeah, so yeah, maybe maybe the truest road games they've played were, were BC and Notre Dame. Uh, you know, I, I think it's an interesting point that, you, that you're making about the strikeout stuff. I do think, though, that, you know, yes, while Pitt does strike out a fair amount, that, you know, NC State does a good job. Um, you know, Clint Chrysler, their pitching coach, does a good job of, like, getting these guys ready to, to pitch their games. And so even if they're not going to whiff, pit a bunch you know maybe they can they can figure out how they need to get these pit hitters out without doing it via strikeout and nc state is a really good fielding team this is a team fielding 984 they've got one of the best defensive shortstops in the country in jose torres they've got a lot of speed and athleticism around the diamond so i i think that if nc state can can find some ways to to pitch to their strength to let Pitt make some contact, um, you know, I, th- I think that they've got they've got a real shot this weekend. Oh, it's a great. I mean, it's a great point, and that's that's kind of the defense is shockingly good for NC State. You know, the, the, there was one point this season where they had you know not made an error in twelve of thirteen or twelve of fourteen or something like that, and that's just. I mean, errors just so many inconsequential errors happen. You know, like they're just they they, they happen in college baseball games, and so. The fact that they go they go so often without making one is just kind of incredible. Uh, interesting matchup on the other side too, because Pitt's pitching, especially Mitch Myers and Matt Gilbertson in the rotation, have kind of more or less also been what NC State has been, where neither of them are real dominant, but they are solid. And I think where Pitt has an edge is they typically get a little more depth from those two guys with Myers and, and Gilbertson. Um, but this is also not like the NC State position player group is certainly not an offense that you feel real comfortable, like looking to pitch to contact to. Whereas, you know, with, with Pitt's offense, it's like, well, they have the strikeouts. And also there are a couple guys that can really hurt you. Um, maybe you can work around them a little bit. NC State's lineup is a little bit different where there's not a ton of break in the lineup. And sure, there are examples of guys that maybe aren't hitting as well as you thought. You know, Luca Trash is in just a really a season-long kind of tailspin after a really, really fast start. And JT Jarrett hasn't been as good as you thought at Devontae Brown, what have you. But those guys are good hitters. Like, that's a pretty deep lineup. And so that's a, that's a matchup there where, you know, those two guys have kind of gotten along on, you know, minimizing damage and pitching to contact a little bit. And, and um, I'll be interested to see how effective that is against an NC State position player group that can, one, really work a count. That's something they can do. And then also every single guy in the lineup can hurt you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a that's a good point. I, so, Pitt needs this one uh, if they're trying to stay in the hosting race. Um, yeah, they the further they fall behind Georgia Tech, if they fall behind Georgia, they, they're behind Georgia Tech now. They the further they fall behind in the division race, were that to happen over the final two weeks, the worse it's going to look for their hosting resume. Um, you know, they already don't really have the right RPI. We've talked about RPI and ACC schools forever. Uh, the thing that they have going for them, though, is like that they should be, you know, right there atop their division. They need to stay there. Um, otherwise, some of the other things they have on their resume, like the the sweep at Florida State, probably will start to matter a little bit less. Um, you know, so they, uh, I think, 
they, they really need, I think, to, to take advantage of, of playing at home this weekend and, uh, you know, come away with, uh, with the series win. All right, Joe, those are my, my picks for the top matchups to watch this week. Let's, uh, let's get another one here. And, you know, your pick usually is a little further off the radar. So uh, what do you got for the, the folks to watch this week? Okay. I feel like I'm really um, last couple of weeks, we had a max series last uh, week and uh, this one will also be right in your strike zone. So I feel like we're really playing to you, but um, what other, just to mention, I had a, or a couple others to mention that I had as backups. If um, my primary choice got, got elevated because I knew it wasn't a great week and could possibly have gotten elevated. Um, Campbell and USC upstate play two best teams in the big South. Campbell took two of three in Bowie's Creek earlier this season. I was there as they say. Um, Upstate has proven to be the better team though, long-term interesting at large case, if they don't win the automatic bid is USC Upstate. Um, so that will be an interesting series in the big South. Right now, by the way, just quickly on that, I would say Mm -hmm. Upstate would probably be in and this weekend wouldn't be a big negative to them because they, uh, would like Campbell's like top 60, top 50 in RPI. Yeah. But upstate would it would really behoove them if they're not going to win the tournament to win the regular season because if you don't do that it starts starts getting dicier out of some of these conferences for sure and that's in, in upstate by the way if you're if you're a fan of a you know an sec team acc team um upstate is a team that you don't necessarily want to pop up in your region now they won't probably won't be a four i mean if they're that large team they won't be a four but that's certainly a team if you're an acc two um, that's uncomfortable because though they have real pitchers uh, on, on that uh, on that roster led by Jordan Marks. Uh, so that's not a real comfortable matchup for you if you end up. Also, interestingly, as we talk upstate at large bits, they just added a midweek next week against Louisville. So, yeah. I mean, we know why Louisville's adding that since they have RPI issues. But that seems to indicate that upstate is like looking at it and saying like, OK, what do we need to do to to make sure we get in as an at-large and, oh, wait, Louisville, Louisville needs a game. Like, let's play that. Yeah. Yeah. We are officially in midweek game moving season. We've also had a lot of cancellations, which a lot of it's been weather, but we're also at the time of year where it doesn't take more than like a drizzle for coaches to be like, you know what, do we need to do this? Um, because it is that time of year after all. Uh, the other series I had, there's a couple big ones in the Mountain West. And we talked about the Mountain West a little bit last week. So, um, but the top four teams are playing each other. San Diego State is playing UNLV. San Diego State still technically leads the conference race, but as we've discussed, the conference records in the Mountain West are so wonky, it's hard to kind of keep, it's going to be a percentage points thing, I can just feel it. Um, But the series I was going to focus on a little is Nevada and Fresno. Nevada also has an interesting at-large resume. Um, You know, we we talked a little bit with reference to to Air Force in Nevada in that way, but Nevada, I feel like, has taken a little step forward in terms of at-large chances goes. Um, you know, so if they were to finish a half game behind San Diego state, now that Mountain West is not doing a conference tournament. So there's no, like, if they don't need the auto bid, it's whoever wins a league. And if they finish a half game back with an RPI 40 or so, like that's kind of interesting, but they're playing Fresno and Fresno is the hottest team there. Now they've won six in a row. And kind of my question coming into the series was, is Fresno, you know, they've beaten some of the worst teams in the conference to win those six games in a row. So is Fresno figuring some things out? 
or is this more they're just beating up the bottom of the league? I think we would have found out this weekend. It's really Fresno's last chance. They're three games back, last chance to really get into that mix there. So that was my other series. Um, but before we move on from yeah. that, shout out to Tyler Bassetti, who oh, yes. has homered in nine straight games, 10 home runs, nine straight games. That's an NCAA record. He has 11 home runs on the season. Yeah. So like this is, uh, <laughs> I don't want to say it's totally come out of nowhere, but also it's uh, kind of come out of nowhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's like uh, he was... Like before, it's like before this season, he was using a bat that was too short or something. Like, and they gave him the right <laughs> bat. And now he's like, "Oh, yes, okay." No, no wonder it was so hard. Uh, yes, I, I had that on my list of notes. If I ended up having to do that series, um, but we're actually going to talk about you know, the Patriot League semifinals. Um, they are moving to the postseason. Do we have drum and fife? Oh, I wish we did. I, I wish we did, but I actually just recently sent those in and donated them, so um, I no longer have those in my possession. So we've got uh, Lehigh taking on Navy. We've got Army taking on Lafayette in the semifinals this weekend. I'm scrolling to make sure I have that right, but I think Teddy would have corrected me if that wasn't. Yes. Uh, Lehigh and Navy, Army and Lafayette. I think it's an interesting set of semifinals. Uh, first off, because I don't think there'll be a huge part of this discussion. Shouts to Lafayette for getting there. First time they've been in the Patriot League tournament in back-to-back years since 2011, 2012. And of course we're counting 2019 as last year because there wasn't a tournament last year. Um, so that's a big deal for a program that has had a hard time having consistent success. They've got a little bit of a pesky offense. I don't think they're probably in the mix here. Lehigh has the best pitching staff in the conference. Obviously Mason Black is the big name there. If you're someone who pays attention to draft stuff, you know who Mason Black is. Or this podcast. Or the, what is podcast guests. Yeah, we did. Yeah, that's true. He was really good. Yeah. So we had Mason Black on the podcast. Um, but Matt Svonson, Luke Reddig, a couple of the other starters are maybe the second and third best pitchers in the conference, depending on how you measure that. Uh, so the pitching staff is really, really deep. The questions for Lehigh, though, offense is just average. Uh, defense is, is not particularly good. Uh, they field 959 as a team. Uh, a lot of pass balls, you know, and sometimes scoring can have something to do with like, pass balls versus wild pitch and all that. So I don't want to hammer them too hard on that, but it, it does appear that defense is a little bit of a shortcoming for Lehigh and that'll they'll, they'll have to obviously um, play more solid to win the auto bid. Army and Navy, of course, are, are in the mix here. Army might be the most well-rounded team in the conference. They're like second in the conference in everything, ERA, batting average, fielding percentage. They've also got a lot of DNA still from those te- the, the teams that have been so good in recent years. And it's a similar story with Navy. Navy best offense in the conference and still has a handful of guys who were around for the regular season title in, in 2019 who played big roles on that team as well. So I think it's going to be a competitive conference tournament. I still bet on Lehigh because with those three starting pitchers in a best out of three situation, which is how they play the semis and the finals, I think you have to look at them as the favorite, but Army and Navy, I think are going to be in the mix as well. Yeah. So I think Lehigh clearly the favorite. They have not won the they have not won the regular season Patriot League title since 2006. They get that done this year. They have been building to this when they brought in the recruiting class that included Black and Reddig a few years ago. Now they're third year players. Um, Sean Leary, the the Lehigh coach was all over how good those guys were. And it was a great job for Lehigh to get in on them. They're local-ish. I think uh, Mason Black like literally is local. um, They're local-ish. They got in early. They kept them. They got them to Lehigh. And, you know, Mason Black has exploded since then, starting the Cape Cod League All-Star game after his freshman season. 
becoming a, a really high-end draft prospect this year. He's he's going to go very well. Lehigh has become a really good pitching development place. Uh, most of their recent draft picks have been pitchers, looking at guys like Levi Stout. Uh, so they've uh, they've definitely got something going there. You mentioned how their offense is a little more suspect. And like while that's true, they do have the Patriot League player of the year, Casey Rother, at the front of this thing. Uh, he's their leading hitter, 350. He's got five jacks. Um, Patriot League's not the world's most offensive league. Tends to be a little more pitching dominated. Uh, so having a guy like that in your offense, I, I think, is is really significant for them as well navy is intriguing uh i think of them a little more pitching wise usually but i don't think that's fair they they always have good hitters as well uh they just don't really have the standout ace this year that might ultimately be what's holding them back the most they also i think dealt with some covid stuff for a while um that might have uh, like, like that knocked out a few weekends for them the for me, though, if a team is going to beat Lehigh over the next two weeks, it would be Army. Army, had, under Jim Foster, has just been really consistently great at playing in the Patriot League tournament. I, you know, anytime I go and I write a Patriot League preview every year, I'm like, oh, well, like, Army won this thing last year, didn't they? I'm like, no, they don't. What they do is they win the tournament. They are amazing at winning this thing i think they've won three of them under foster it might be two in one last year i think they've won three in like the last like five four or five something like that and they have a couple times gone to annapolis to do it uh you know navy has won the regular season title and then army finds a way to to beat their their arch rivals in the patriot league tournament in annapolis so i don't want to rule out what army is capable of doing here uh they like you mentioned a lot of players still are there from from those teams uh now however because their service academies they didn't they, they might have gone an extra year in the ncaa's eyes but the u.s army and the u.s navy didn't didn't necessarily see it that way uh so they aren't they're maybe as veteran as some of the other teams around but they do have players that that were a part of that um, and clearly they just have something clicks in the Patriot League tournament for, for Army. And Lehigh is a team that has very little experience in this kind of situation. So does that, does that come to play or can their talent uh, carry the day for them? That is, uh, that is really what I'm going to be watching uh, for, the, for the next two weeks here. Yeah, I mean, the Patriot League tournament might not necessarily, for you general listener here who's a fan of some other team, conference might not be necessarily on your radar but one I think it's going to be a pretty interesting tournament and secondarily it does mean that postseason baseball is back in your lives and we need to celebrate that at every turn yeah absolutely and uh you know also normally we would have talked about army navy uh, playing last week they, they played their series last week I usually try and make that into a bigger thing because part of my like whole what was some bailiwick of mine has developed as like college baseball does a really bad job of highlighting its rivalries. And so I try and highlight them when I can, uh, but that went really far under the radar. And like, that is, that is super duper on me. Uh, but you know, that they are, I, I, I like what army has this year, uh, like Anthony Gianchin in their lineup, 
uh, has just a really good veteran player, but you know, Navy played really well last weekend. So they're, uh, they're, they're probably going to feel like they're coming into, uh, in, into this, this tournament in a good spot. I don't want to, I don't want to underplay what Navy is, is capable of this, this season. One final thing I will say, I meant to mention this in my other series to watch. This is more of just a kind of a sentimental thing in some way. Florida A&M is playing at NC Central. Try to get out to maybe the finale of that last home series for NC Central um, before that program goes away. They obviously still have a lot to play for. They're going to be in the MEAC tournament. They'll have a chance to win that auto bid. That would be a cool story. Obviously, they've certainly got the arms to do it. Um, but last home regular season series for NC Central as a program, uh, they will be vacating Durham Athletic Park. And I have to wonder what Durham will become of Durham Athletic Park uh, once NC Central moves out. So kind of a historic facility there that uh, isn't going to have a primary tenant. So we'll have to have to see on that. But um, you, so, you listener know it best as the setting of Boulder. Correct. Yeah. Now it's, um, you know, it's a pretty neat little setting for NC Central. Uh, it's right downtown and it's got a chain link fence all the way around it. So people, rather than go in the stadium, people just kind of stand outside the chain link fence with like their beers from the bar next door and the, their coffees and from the coffee shop across the street and people walking their dogs, stop and watch. And it's kind of got a community vibe to it. It's kind of a cool deal, but um, yeah, last, last home series there. So kind of a sad, sad weekend for uh, NC Central Baseball. Yes, absolutely. That is uh, that and LaSalle, of course, are stories to watch down the stretch here as those two programs uh, only have a few weeks left uh, in their, in their, uh, I don't know, life. <laughs> Both of them will, will be cut following this season. Uh, so yeah, that's a, that is a good one to highlight as well. And also the MEAC is like totally wide open trying to pick what team to give the auto bid to on a week to week basis. There is a mess. So uh NC Central has a real opportunity to uh, to go out and win the MEAC tournament, I would think, considering their arms. And uh, this weekend against FAMU, a chance to position themselves better, get a better seed going into that thing. So uh, definitely something to watch there as well. All right, so we hit on the big series around the country and uh, and then several of the, the smaller ones. It's uh, like, like I said, as we get down to crunch time, there are a lot of these series that just they, they have a lot of meaning to conference title and, and postseason races. So plenty to uh, plenty to watch. We'll have it all covered for you over at baseballamerica.com. And you can find further analysis from the two of us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We will be back here with another edition of the Baseball America College podcast next week on Monday to recap all of the action from around week 13, from week 13 around the country. There it is. Uh, so make sure you're subscribed to the Baseball America podcast in your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, you can find us. We appreciate you all for subscribing. We appreciate you all for listening. And we thank Rapsodo for presenting this edition of the Baseball America College podcast, as they always do. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. 
Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. 